Coming up, we go along with Doug Saunders, author of Maximum Canada, Why 35 Million Canadians Aren't Enough. Over a hundred and 50-year period, really, during which people didn't come to Canada, or if they came to Canada, they didn't stay. Our Confederation project was to plant people across the land in, in order to have the British flag there and not be American. Even if our, all our cities doubled in size, we would still only occupy 1% of arable land in Canada. So it's, it's, but it's not a good way for cities to develop. Mm -hmm. It's not ecological. It's, it's, it's not good for building tight-knit communities to be building huge houses with big backyards sprawling across the, the, and it's also not a great place to grow up in many ways because, well, you know, it's a two-hour go train ride to the actual world. <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in, pull up a chair at the bar, pour yourself a Negroni. It's the house cocktail around here. Sit back and enjoy a lengthy conversation with a fascinating guy. Doug Saunders is the former European Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. He's the author of Arrival City, The Final Migration, and Our Next World. They're all award winners. His new book, is called Maximum Canada, Why 35 Million Canadians Aren't Enough. He will tell us why, if we triple the population of this country, it'll put an end to urban sprawl. It'll improve congestion on our highways. It's fascinating stuff. Stay around for us. We start off the interview by me talking about uh, an award that he won for one of his other books. And The Guardian said that when he won this award that the book Arrival City, The Final Migration may be the best popular book on cities since Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of Great American Cities half a century ago. And I said, well, perhaps you'll get the same kind of reward and recognition that Jane Jacobs got. This is how we got started. Maybe you'll get a street named after you here. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if there's Jane Jacobs way in New York. I know, I know, that. I know. I, 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 I ride my bicycle along streets in Toronto named after famous people, BP Nickel Lane and so on. <laughs> and, and, and I think, do I want to have the most potholed street in Ontario named after me? <laughs> well, it's, it, I would take it. I'm just putting it out there right now. I would take it either way. <laughs> so. Your book is a fascinating look at where we are right now. And I want to talk about uh, a lot of stuff in this interview, so I'm going to try and cram it all in. But the book is a fascinating look at how Canada's history is actually a little different than we think when we think of our immigration policies, when we think about how this country grew. So let's go back sort of to the beginning. You say that in order for Canadians and Canada to move on, to thrive, we have to triple the population. But the roots of that go back a very long way. That's right. I mean, I, this is not a book, ad, an advocacy book. It's not calling for a specific population uh, or so on. In fact, in fact, the, the the, a key chapter is called The Case Against 100 Million. Mm -hmm. So it, it, in some ways it's saying, look, let's slow down and think about this a little bit. But it looks at the problem of underpopulation to the extent that it is a problem and to the greater extent that it will be a problem soon. Uh, but first and foremost, this is a history book. This, mm -hmm. is, this, is, this is me asking a sort of fundamental question about Canada that you don't really real, start to realize clearly enough until you're away. I mean, I was, I was away from Canada in, in Los Angeles and in London for the greater part of uh, 15 years. And, uh, and you start to notice that Canada looks different from other New World countries 
in certain ways. And in one what of, ways? One of the big ways, of course, is that not many people ever came to it. <laughs> yeah. And and at first you think, oh, it's cold. That's why. But then you start to realize, you study the history and realize, okay, no, people people were not getting out of Canada or, or failing to come to Canada because of the weather. They were choosing to go to in, instead to places like like the Dakotas and New England, which had the same weather uh, over, over, over a 150-year period, really, during which people didn't come to Canada, or if they came to Canada, they didn't stay. And, and th- you talk about this in the book. It, let, let's delve into why. Tell me why uh, Alberta, for instance, seems to have uh, a, a problem keeping people in the province. Well, it historically did historically. anyway. Now, I mean, today it's interesting. I, I mean, Alberta has suffered an economic shock, but has not really seen a significant net out migration and so mm-hmm. on. I mean, there's, there, there is a new economy. But our big efforts to settle the plains in the 19th century, remember, this was, we all learned this in history class. It was the, it was the big settlement project. We, we sent agents around Europe and gave people, you know, hundreds of acres and, and a pile of money to come out and settle, and it was supposed to be this great project. I mean, we know we know one way that that failed, uh, which was which was that it changed our way of thinking about the people who already lived on that land, right. who are already people well attuned to a global economy, who are who are who you know the Cree had been linked into the worldwide fur trading economy for some time. They knew how to make money off that land and settle it. But our Confederation project was to plant people across the land in, in order to have the British flag there and not be American. And and it failed. I mean, it really did. We, we the, the population of the Canadian West only grew by 100-something thousand during that whole period. Uh, but most of the people who settled left during and, that and, time. And, and why do they leave? And it wasn't until the 20th century that the, that the, the West really got settled anyway. And it's very interesting. And not only that, but before that, people left. Most of the people who settled in Upper Canada and Lower Canada after the war, between about 1815 and almost the Second World War, yeah. really, with the, a small exception of the first decade of the 20th century, didn't stay. During most decades of Canada's first century, we had more people emigrated out of Canada than arrived as immigrants. I mean, the 90-year the period before the end of the Second World War, Canada only attracted 3.7 million immigrants during a period when tens of millions went to other former colonies. And 3.3 million left Canada for other places. So a total of 400,000 people came and stayed during, during the, the, the 90 years after the 1850s. And we need to ask why that was. Why did, why, why when 40 million people left Europe for the new world during during the greatest mi- human migration in history up to that point did statistically none of them settle permanently in Canada we yeah. suffered a net migratory loss during that entire period our population only grew because we had large families and in looking into that you start to realize that there was there was a, a way of organizing Canada there was sort of a war of ideas dating right back to the late 18th century and really continuing with big idea wars in the 1890s and then the 1910s and then the 1940s and then the 1960s over what sort of place Canada would be. And and I look at what I call the minimizing impulse, a set of policies and a set of ideas about Canada that together, even if you even if you invoke a few of them, tend to create this spiral that that makes Canada not attract people. And look, this isn't some mysterious thing. People didn't want to stay in Canada because you couldn't make a good living here uh, and because it, it wasn't it wasn't a very nice place in how it was run and organized. It was expensive. The, the, the sort of starting point of the minimizing impulse was 
the dark years after the War of 1812. Before that, Canada had been sort of had had an open border with the United States. It had uh, it had seen itself as a, as a place where cities were forming and 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 entrepreneurial economies were forming. It had treated Indigenous people as partners in confederation, and in fact, they were legally so uh, partners in in nation building, I should say, and they were legally so under their treaties. After the War of 1812, we really slammed the border with the U.S. shut and really kept it shut with the exception of the 1850s for, for a long time, we decided that we did not want people coming from all over the world to Canada at the point when the United States was starting to say, yes, let's do that. We wanted British people. We wanted especially Anglican British people. Mm-hmm. But the thing that we don't know that we didn't learn in history class is that we didn't just want white Anglican British people, but we wanted rural white Anglican yeah, British they, people. Yeah, they didn't want educated people. They, they they turned away people that were entrepreneurial. They didn't, and, and that, to me, again, is one of the things that I learned in this book that just felt counterintuitive yeah. to me. And, and it was specific instructions. And this wasn't just at some weird period before Confederation. During the 1870s, 1880s, even during the Laurier era, um, really right up to the Second World War, those immigration agents who were fanning out across Britain and Western Europe to try to get people to immigrate to Canada, I mean, we did have big immigration drives, they were told specifically that if people had education or trades or wanted to start businesses or were urban, they were not to be accepted. They were be, to be encouraged to go to the United States and, and so, And why is this? We've only got about a minute left mm-hmm. in this segment. So why is this, though? We saw ourselves as a rural country that was a provider of raw materials to the British Empire and very limited in scope. And this caused many people not to want to come here because you couldn't make a profit as a farmer the way you could in the States. Right. That I'm speaking with Doug Saunders, whose book is called Maximum Canada, Why 35 Million Canadians Are Not Enough. Uh, we just have a minute left. Are we, uh, or were we in those days, and maybe even now, uh, a little bit too consumed with trying to figure out what kind of country we are, rather than just letting it grow and prosper? Uh, are, are we? Do we spend too much time thinking about our national identity? Oh, absolutely, we did. I mean, even 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 the British in granting Canada uh, 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 independ- semi-independence yeah. said said you guys are you guys are being way too restrictive. You you you're 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 not granting the First Nations Aboriginal title. You're 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 not building an actual economy. But it became a sort of fetish in Canada. We were a, we were an urban industrial country by the beginning of the 20th century. We pretended otherwise, really, right up until the 1960s, and and that cost us. Yes, we became a successful place with a high living standard, but we were left with a deficit of people uh, because of the sh- absolutely huge numbers who who didn't who who didn't who didn't stay who left. And, and we, we sort of emerged from the Second World War realizing, okay, we don't have enough people to do the things we want to do. In the book, you talk about things like urban sprawl. So you have a city like Toronto. This show is heard across the country. So I'll use Toronto as an example because we're here and we both live here. Sure. It applies to Vancouver and Montreal yeah. as well, though. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Where where you Calgary. have... Yeah, Calgary. Like so many cities that, that spread out over large... We have space, large uh, uh, amounts of space, uh, but we have urban sprawl. We have uh, farmland being taken over uh, for, for uh, uh, new building complexes and stuff that for a while in the 70s felt like they were stuck in the middle of nowhere. You'd have to drive through farms to get to these little things. Uh, urban sprawl has come to be two bad words. We don't want, we don't want urban sprawl in our cities, but it's a result, as you say, of underpopulation. How so? You know, I, I grew up in the outer suburbs uh, in, on uh, my, my 
my father was an uh, is a retired auto worker, and and we we lived out in the outskirts of Burlington, Ontario. And I I my the first house I lived in had been a farm field a matter of months before yeah. uh, I lived there. That was the pattern at that period in the mid to late twentieth century. Um, Canadians were sprawling out across farmland. Um, it's a bit of a myth that we were destroying lo- important amounts of farmland. I mean, I mean, e- even if our, all our cities doubled in size, we would still only occupy one percent of arable land in Canada. So it's, it's, but it's not a good way for cities to develop. Mm-hmm. It's not ecological. It's, it's, it's not good for building tight knit communities to be building huge houses with big backyards sprawling across the, the. And it's also not a great place to grow up in many ways because, well, you know, it's a two-hour go train ride to <laughs> the actual world. Um, and that many ways that is over that type of uh, economy of of housing is over already and 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 we're entering an era where we're starting to solve the problems of that or confront them anyway mm-hmm. we've realized we've realized that growth in cities is not a matter of sprawling across farmland that what what the market wants what people want are tighter knit communities uh, where they have access to things, a lot of a lot of those old suburban neighborhoods are being redesigned with with multi-unit dwellings in them and so on, so that there will be higher density. Partly because the people who live there would actually like, as they get older, as the the communities get more mature, as they become more diverse and and contain a lot of people who are immigrants who maybe maybe at first don't have cars, they they would like to have a public transit link right. and so on. Realize that you actually have a, have to have a much higher population density to to have that. And a lot of us. So that's start- where low population. Comes in, right? Low population density is the major problem yeah. in Canada's cities, including Vancouver and Toronto, um, except for a tiny little core in the middle of both of those two. They, they, they are cities whose major problems are low population density. And, and specifically, the reason why the traffic congestion is bad is low population density. The reason why you're, you're, you're stuck on the Lionsgate Bridge or stuck on the King Streetcar or stuck, on, stuck trying to get off the island of uh, Montreal is, is because there is not enough population density to provide the forms of rapid transportation that would alleviate those problems. We're, Canadian cities are stuck in sort of a weird intermediate moment right now where they're too large for their existing envelopes, you could mm-hmm. say, for their exi- existing collection of, of roads and pipes and subways and so on. Um, but they need to snap up to a ne- another magnitude of size before they can afford the envelope that, uh, that, that, that would allow them to move about efficiently. So a, a city like Toronto, uh, I mean, how many people, I mean, maybe this is an impossible question a- to answer, but how many people do we need to make a go of it here, to make it so that we can have the proper transportation that we need, the, you know, all the infrastructure that we need? We're, we're seeing a proliferation of condos being built downtown. We're building up. We're not building mm-hmm. out so much. We're building up. And it's going to bring a lot of people to the city. But, you know, the fear of any of us who live downtown is that soon you know, you're not going to be able to take the subway or you're going to have to wait five cars to go by before you can get on. Well, Toronto specifically is a generation behind in its public transit At development. Least. Yeah. And, and again, that is in large part because it does not have the density of population, the density of taxpayers to pay for that. It should have about two extra subway lines that will come to exist as the population yeah. grows. It'll make it much easier. Toronto is in sort of a state like uh, New York City was in in the 1920s, before it had fully amalgamated, and when it re- really did not have enough transit lines. And you read you read stories from back then, and people were just stuck. Or or 
London at around the same time, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it, it felt overcrowded. Those those cities both felt a lot less crowded when they actually got bigger in population. It became much easier to move around, um, and 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 so on. And and I think Canadians are entering an era where the norm for urban Canadians has become living in an apartment rather than living in a house. We still are a country where weirdly. We're one of the last advanced countries where the word, uh, where where we stigmatize apartments. The word condo, yeah. which which is what we call apartment living, is uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a curse in in, <laughs> in Canada. It's a bit of a term of snobbish derision directed by people with single family houses against people who live in apartments. Um, and I think we need to get get around that. Our children and grandchildren are going to grow up in a world where an apartment is a normal place to live, and we need that. It's the ecological way to do things. We Canada Canada has an enormous carbon footprint because we we blow off so much energy, uh, heating single family houses that are inefficient, uh, providing fuel for for private automobiles in big cities, and the fact is that that most people want to move away from that. Lots of people. Lots of people will continue to live the way they do. I mean, I mean, a Canada with a higher population is is not a Canada that will be very different from the way it is now. But it will allow us to have forms of growth that are ecological. A, a big part of Maximum Canada is taking note of what what it would take to solve the ecological problems of Canada, not just in carbon footprints, but in but in but in other forms of pollution. And a higher population density is the only way to to do that. Uh, we were talking about. Uh, the ecological footprint of of having a smaller population. Um, tell us exactly what that means. So we have big family houses that that use up a lot of resources. It's got to be more to it than that, though. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Canada developed in a way that without much consideration for the space we took up. We did not. We did not set out because to we be, have so much of it. Yeah, right? and we did not set out to be a country of of cities. We didn't right. think of ourselves as urban, and a consequence of that is is our cities are are sprawling and and ill formed. And not only that, our transportation, both within them and between them, is extremely energy inefficient. Mm-hmm. Um, we cannot afford high-speed electric rail lines between c- cities like a lot of other countries have. We we don't we don't have the pot. We we could pay for them as as a tax decision, but they would be enormously subsidized. There would be a huge subsidy from working Canadians to the upper middle class, right. effectively. And uh, uh, and and we we would not have the ridership to really support them. Um, we we need those things in the future. We need to have the sort of population density to support that. But not only that. We know that there is a logic to population growth in cities and and carbon footprints. Um, as you increase the population of cities above a certain income level, which Canada is already well above, um, the carbon footprint goes down. Not only the carbon output per person goes down quite a bit as you increase the numbers in a densely populated city, but the density itself allows the absolute energy output to go down. So. As as they say say have uh, one city of eight million people uh, has has uh, something like twice the energy efficiency of two cities of four million people, right, right. and and Canada needs that at this point. We want to become carbon neutral, and there are other benefits to this as well. Of course, um, having those dense clusters of people. I mean, we're, this isn't the nineteenth century. We don't want a higher population 
as a boasting point or <laughs> as as uh, an army of workers to plug into factories and farms and armies, literally, and yeah. and that sort of thing. We don't need uh, we don't need ranks and files of people, but we need specific people in specific places with specific skills. Um, and doing doing specific things, we want to be the country that, as as we enter an economy where automation and uh, artificial intelligence are are driving the economy rather than human labor, we want to be the country that's making and exporting that artificial intelligence and automation. We don't want to be the country that falls victim to it. Right. And we almost are there, <laughs> um, but first of all, we don't quite have the clusters and footprints to do it. We, we, it would be it's very interesting to ask the question: Could we have another? BlackBerry, Research in Motion, uh, coming out of Canada. What is stopping us now? Partly it's we don't have the dense clusters of, of knowledge and expertise. We also don't have the consumer markets to, uh, to serve as a starting point uh, for that. We don't feel it now because we have a very high standard of living, but we're about to enter an era where that's going to become much more difficult, where the cost of paying for an aging, slow-growing population is going to become exorbitant for governments, where the this, this small size of a, of a consumer market is going to become very difficult for companies trying to make a go of it, and where the small taxpayer and audience base is going to force us to cut back on our, our decisions on, on how to be Canadian. How do you go about growing the population then? It's not about mass immigration. No. Um, we have a fairly modest level of immigration, uh, about 300,000 immigrants and refugees per year. I mean, refugees are a tiny slice of mm -hmm. it, aren't really, uh, which is about 0.8% of our population each year. Let's put it this way. If we wanted to have the levels of immigration we had at the beginning of the 20th century, we'd need to have 2 million people a year coming in. Right. Nobody wants that. The most aggressive projections for a higher population, um, the Conference Board of Canada, which is Canada's largest think tank, and has won the, a, an advisory committee to this government, uh, this federal government on economic growth, proposed another. They call for a, um, a, sl a modest increase to something in the 400,000s, to so something you know, above 1.0% right, per year, per year um, which, which would not make a big difference. It's the, that's the sort of level of increase and decrease we've experienced over the last 20, 30 years. And that's if we don't, that's if our family size remains the same. I mean, one of the sort of unconsidered factors that I address in Maximum Canada is the fact that we partly have a smaller population than we should have because Canadians don't have as many children as they'd like to have mm -hmm. uh, because they can't afford to. I mean, they, they uh, Angus Reid does a thing where they survey couples in their 20s asking how many children they'd, they'd like to have, and that average number is 2.4. <laughs> and then and then they look once those couples are in their 40s at how many children they have had, and that number is 1.6. Right. Um, now you, you you wouldn't be able to completely bridge that gap because a lot of them you know change their minds or develop fertility problems or break up or or what have you. But nevertheless, 70% of them say the reason why they did not have that extra almost one child was financial, and by which they usually mean childcare. Mm -hmm. And and I think in order for people to support a population growth scenario, we need to be looking at what it takes to bring people, to, to allow Canadians to bring people into Canada the more traditional way. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it, we know it's where Quebec had an interesting exercise in this. They had a freakishly low fam average family size, like a lot of post-Catholic uh, societies did uh, in the 1990s, way below the Canadian average. They introduced a subsidized daycare program. Right. 
$10 a day it is now uh, per child rather than $20,000 a year for the larger cities in Canada. And uh, it caused the average family size to grow by quite a bit, up to sl slightly above the Canadian average, and therefore the population to grow. And not only that, it paid for itself. Right. Um, the number of women who were able to enter the workforce, their extra income tax uh, more than paid for the entire program. So we can talk about a lot of things within Canada that are investments we need to be making anyway. There's a lot of anxiety among Canadians about things like trying to work while raising children that should be considered as part of the larger mental exercise, policy exercise around, around deciding what our population should be. Because we do have to manage this growth. Oh, yeah. It, so it, it, we don't you, want to dump people into Canada. Um, with, with no transportation, with no, you know, right. all that stuff. I mean, right? no I infrastructure. Mean, Maximum Canada, in a way, is is rather. You could say that rather than calling for a certain population, it's actually saying let's step back and let's adopt the mindset as if our population was going to triple. Because even if we, even if it doesn't, those investments uh, in advance need to be made. They need to be made even if if we decide to freeze the population, because right. uh, because our the next generation of Canadians are going to face real troubles in housing, in the structure of the workforce, in things like that. We tripled our population between. 1945 and 2015. And in the 40s, there was a huge national de debate. People said, this is never going to work. Our cities will become ghettos. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll run out of food. Uh, we'll be, we'll, our city will be pocked with civilizationally incompatible people like Italians and Ukrainians and, and so on. And, 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 and it, it will become like the United States and so on. In fact, almost the opposite of all of those things happened. We, we, as a consequence of the higher population, we produce way more food than we can consume. Our cities have become the most peaceful and successful cities in the Western world. Uh, and and it, the, the increase in density and population has allowed us to become culturally independent and, and, and to have a real Canadian voice in the world, particularly in things like culture and the arts. And uh, the next tripling of population, which is bound to happen at some point, um, it'll produce similar benefits and, and it lowers the crime rate as well, I should add, as we increase the proportion of foreign-born people in Canada, that drives the crime rate down. Um, but it won't be as easy as it was. We were very lucky during the last 70 years to have had the right housing in the right cities and the right jobs for the right people and so on. We're, we can't just get lucky that way uh, this time around, and we shouldn't expect to. We should talk about making the investments. We should talk about the, the housing shortage problem that exists in, in the largest cities in Canada. We should talk about the fact that while we have very close to full employment in Canada, it's very often a patchwork quilt of, of, of contracts and buy and sell opportunities and gig economy jobs and developing income support for those things. Those are things we need to do anyway. So it's sort of like Maximum Canada is kind of saying, let's think like we're going to triple the population because it'll help us anyway. Uh, increasing the country's population may be the best way for Canada to reconcile with indigenous and regional divides. Uh, how so? Well, on, on one hand, the, the set of policies that I call the minimizing impulse, mm -hmm. that, that, that desire to be a closed country, that, that, that a closed and colonial country, um, of an ethnically homogenous country and so on, that set of policies, which really dominated Canada with a few exceptions from pre-Confederation years and, and until the 1950s, was devastating for Indigenous peoples. It was tough on Quebec, um, and in part because it was, it was an attempt to define us all as being Ang British subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, we were legally all British subjects until the end of the 1970s. Um, 
And the idea that there was more than one type of Canadian, that, 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 that there were two nations, that was the big debate that dominated Canada right up through 1967. And, and, uh, and the idea, the, I mean, Baker spent 1967 when he was opposition leader saying, if you, if you try to acknowledge that there are English and French Canadians, that'll destroy confederation. We can never do that. The idea that there's three groups of Canadians, that they're indigenous Canadians, was unspeakable until right about that moment when you started to get activists from First Nations and Métis and Inuit communities saying, look, this has to stop. Um, and of course, by that point, by 1967, a fifth of Canadians were not of British or French or Indigenous descent. They were this third force. They were, they were Chinese and Sikhs and Ukrainians and Italians. And, and this had become the reality of Canada by that point. The awakening of Indigenous nations during that period was very important. They only got the vote in 1961. Um, and, and pretty much every First Nations family alive today has somebody in the family who survived the horrible abuse of residential schools, which, which were a direct consequence of our, of our, of our development mm -hmm. policy, of our minimizing impulse, as I say. Now, what's happened since then is, is there's been a consensus reached, very fragile consensus, but a rough consensus about what Canada is. And, and about population growth and things like that. That is, consensus includes the recognition that indigenous nations are, are partners in sovereignty, uh, which was a product of activism in the 60s and 70s, of court decisions in the 70s, and then finally was entrenched in our constitution in the 1980s. And there's a long way to go, but indigenous nations are now seeing the, the greatest population growth of, of any Canadian community, far exceeding uh, anyone else. It's a, it's a huge recovery in population after, of course, the word decimation is inadequate because decimation means one in tens removed. It was the opposite of that. Between about 1800 and the beginning of the 20th century, the indigenous population fell from about 2 million to under 200,000. It was, I mean, the word genocide gets used and, and, and when you see those numbers, you realize, okay, this is, this is not an unrealistic word. Now there's a huge recovery. It's springing back up to 2 million. And Indigenous nations are sort of a generation ahead of other Canadian communities in recognizing that absolute population density is very important for rebuilding societies, um, for having the type of tight-knit communities that can, that can have good schools, assuming that the federal government comes through in, in, in funding eventually, that can have the type of communities. In Quebec, there was a large recognition of this as well. There was a big fight over whether Quebec should have a, a high relative population by, by restricting the overall population growth of Canada, or whether Quebec, Francophone Quebec, should have a high absolute population. Uh, and the, they fin finally decided, okay, no, we need a high absolute population. It doesn't matter if we have the largest share of MPs or, or whatever. What matters is that is that we have a, enough of a population density to have the institutions, to have the economies going on that allow us to be an independent nation within a sovereign Canada, as, as we like to say. And uh, uh, I think there's there's now sort of a common recognition that that having having a sustainable population uh, across the country, one that then one that will allow human communities to to grow and not to age. Uh, is, is one that is beneficial to everybody. It doesn't mean this is going to be some utopia. It doesn't mean that we're still not going to have poisoned relations between communities, but it means that we're not going to be starved of, of, of resources in the near future. And, and it, it can become uh, a country of mutually helpful, robust, str uh, strong communities uh, with, with that, that have used population growth 
in an intelligent way to build up the, the institutions, to build up the ecologies and the economies that will allow them to prosper through to the next century. The book is called Maximum Canada, Why 35 Million Canadians Are Not Enough. My guest is Doug Saunders. The question I guess we'll wrap with is what happens if we don't increase our population in the coming years? Well, we shouldn't pretend that it's going to be some, you know, Mad Max dystopia if, <laughs> if, 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 if we don't. Um, it's a, that's a legitimate choice, and, and it's one we may choose to make. But what I look at at Maximum Canada is what that will cost. It will be very expensive. Our, our uh, governments will have very tough choices to make. We'll have to limit our – our it will cost our ability to provide economic e equality. I mean, it, it, when, when you have a, a non-growing population, inequality and poverty inevitably increase. The cost of providing services, ecological solutions will become much more difficult, and, and we will become economically vulnerable rather than economically uh, leading. So we, we, can, we can make that decision. And, and, and look, we, we, would, we would be okay. Canada is not going to be terrifically different in our daily lives, in what it looks like, in, in, in how we act, in, in what sort of places we live, if we triple the population or if we let it slide and go into shrinkage. Yeah, we're not talking about the It's a matter Canadian... of capacity and choices. Really. Yeah, yeah. We're not talking about the Canadian cultural identity here. We're just talking about physically. Yeah. We do know that when we have large enough audiences, when we have large enough cult, body, an, an, enough consumers yeah. of culture and, and enough large enough groups of people talking to each other, that really strengthens Canadian culture. We are, and those of us who are in media and cultural yeah. industries know that the limited size of the Canadian mm -hmm. audience restricts our ability to do some of the things and to have some of the successes that, that other, other countries with higher population densities can do. And, and we've had a flowering of Canadian culture because of the tripling of population since the Second World War. Interesting, you know, if you're in a band and you try and touring this country, Oh yeah, because it's big. Because the cities and and the 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 main places to play are spread so far apart, it's virtually impossible to to do it unless you're on the road all the time, like bands like Teenage Head did, and all sorts of things. It's a it's a tough nut to crack culturally. It is. It's hard to it's hard to start a movie industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very difficult to do anything in movies or books or or things like that. <laughs> like this, that 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 only talk about Canada that are just for right. Canadian audience. So we're forced to either sort of homogenize and globalize our content, do do what Vice Media did, and and make sort of non-specific content for the entire world, and see if you can make money that way. We don't know yet. Or if you want to just be talking, if if you're doing something that's in in uh, business or sports or or arts or politics that that's just for Canadian audience. It's very hard to get beyond sort of two people in a room, and and to, to get this sort of audience and financing to do that, and and that's 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 part of what we need to consider is is, yes, we're fine with Hollywood movies, but but at, we would like to be uh, culturally self-standing and 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 independent enough to to have to have online institutions to have to have uh, cultural institutions uh, to have artists who can survive without having to go overseas yeah. to make a go of it we would like to be able to have the the world's best architect uh, be somebody who doesn't have to move to Santa Monica you know that's Doug Saunders his book is called maximum Canada why 35 million Canadians aren't enough it's fascinating thought-provoking stuff well, that's it for this week. We have to shut the doors. We're keeping all the 35 million Canadians out of the House of Krauss right now. But please, come back and see us next week. 
We put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows? Maybe it'll be one of your favorite people. And you don't want to miss that.